All right. Well, good morning, beloved. Great to see all of you this morning. I want to invite you this morning to uh, join me and open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Today we're going to venture to cover the rest of the chapter. It's a lot more than we normally cover. Um, but I feel like this is one of those texts that in order for us to get the full weight of Peter's message here, um, it would not be so good to break it up into two or even three different sections, but to consume it in, in one meal. Um, so to get the explosiveness of what Peter is saying here. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week, and that is in the second half of verse 10. And we're going to read right down to the end of the chapter, verse 22. So let's jump right into it. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in the second half of verse 10. Peter continues to unmask the false teachers, and he calls them daring and self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against these before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of their doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophets. These are springs without water, and mists driven by a storm from whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome by this, he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed unto them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Whoa. Here, Peter, with just a few swift, vivid strokes of a pen, begins to 
color in the ungodly characteristics of these false teachers. And he does so using graphic descriptions and word plays that require us to pay close attention to each of them. His language is fierce, it's fiery. Peter holds nothing back. And should any of these false teachers be listening in, Peter wants them to know that their rebellion has eternal consequences. In fact, the very judgment that they deny will be theirs. And so as we walk through these verses, I want to show you three descriptions that unmask these false teachers. And these are on the back of your bulletin. We begin with number one, their character is ungodly. Their character is ungodly. In verses 10 through 16, Peter puts under the magnifying glass their ungodly character. And what's important to note here is it might be possible, as we've discussed, to deceive people for a while with their words. But ultimately, these false teachers were exposed by their ungodly character. And that's where Peter goes when in the middle of verse 10 there that he calls them daring and self-willed. We might say today today that they are arrogant and self-centered. They were brazen and audacious, this word means. The word for daring means someone who is actually reckless. They dare to defy God and to exalt themselves no matter the consequences. Brazen. Brazen. They spoke with confidence without humility. And to illustrate the extent of their arrogance, Peter says these false teachers don't even tremble when they revile or slander angelic majesties. And in this context, angelic majesty likely refers to the fallen angels, the demons who were referenced last week in our text. In other words, these false teachers don't even tremble when they brazenly bind the devil in Jesus' name. We've all seen and heard this before, haven't we? They're always so brazen to do spiritual battle, just throwing around the name of Christ. Whereas verse 11 continues, angels, God's righteous angels, who are greater in might and power, do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. See, even from their exalted position, holy angels don't brazenly go around disrespecting fallen angels like these false teachers do. For example, we see this play out in an interesting story. We just turn a few pages to the short letter of Jude, Jude verse 9, when the preeminently powerful Michael, the archangel, I don't know if you remember the story or not, but something that was always interesting to me when I read this text, disputed with the devil. What was this dispute about? And argued about the body of Moses. Just another fascinating story, by the way, that Jude just kind of leaves there and (laughs) says, there you go. Nothing else is referred to it, but Apparently, Michael, the archangel, and Satan were arguing over 
who got the body of Moses after he died. But notice, even Michael did not dare to pronounce against him a railing judgment, but instead said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. See, Michael wasn't blinded by his arrogance. He knew instead to leave this battle in the hands of the Lord. Not so with these false teachers. They're so blind that they did not do even what Michael did not dare to do as they directly revile angelic majesties as though they had some kind of authority over them, please. And you know, this shouldn't surprise us. These false teachers themselves, tools of the enemy, are so deep into Satan's grasp that they pay so little attention to his power over them. They're so brazen, they're so self-willed, they don't even tremble when in their own flattery they revile demons. Scary place to be. But Peter's just getting started <laughs> with their ungodly behavior. So we continue in verse 12. But these, these false teachers, are like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. The critique gets scathing here. These false teachers are described as unreasoning animals. They operate solely on self-indulgence, and might I say, beastly passions. He says they're like creatures of instinct, which means they're not at all rational. They have no sense of eternity or purpose written on their hearts. They're like brute beasts knowing no law, but their own as animal devours animal in the chain. They live according to the flesh. They teach about things they do not understand. And again, at the end of verse 12 and at the start of verse 13, Peter reminds them of their ultimate judgment. I love how the ESV translates this. He says, they will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wages for their wrongdoing. The NIV also captures a similar idea as it says, like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm that they have done. God will not be mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will reap. That's the principle here. And what Peter reminds them is they will face the very judgment that they deny. Peter continues in their unmasking of their ungodly character in verse 13. It says they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. As a general rule, sinners tend to engage in debauchery at night. 1 Thessalonians 5, 7 says, For those who sleep, sleep at night. For those who get drunk, are drunk at night. However, these men were so consumed by their lusts and they counted it a pleasure to sin right in the middle of the day for all to see. 
In other words, they had no level of shame with what they were doing. These false teachers are so consumed with lust, they can't even wait for the nighttime. Their greedy passions are driving them. Verse 2 talked about their sensuality. Verse 10 says that they indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. Further describing their action, Peter, with obvious disdain and disgust, says, verse 13, they are stains and blemishes. Man, these are absolutely vivid words. This word for stain means filthy or dirty spots, as you would suspect. The word blemishes speak of a scab or a defect on the skin. And so together, it's the idea of filthy scabs that pollute or disease. And then he says, they're reveling in their deceptions. What does that mean, reveling in their deceptions? Well, they're living in filthy, sinful pleasure. They're living by the passions of their animal instincts. They do it, verse 13 says, as they carouse with you. This verb in the Greek actually means to feast together or to eat together. It's the idea of a public banquet or even of a potluck. Sometimes referred to as the love feast. It was whenever the church would meet and gather together to have a meal. And when these men would attend, Peter says, they're like stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. They're like these filthy stains, spots, blemishes, scabs. When they show up for your church feast, they pollute it. They're filthy. Even in that very setting, they use it as a site to sin in. Their blemishes on the church for whom the unblemished Lamb of God died for. Very strong language by Peter. And by calling them out for who they truly are, Peter's saying to us today as well, it's important that we see them this way. In fact, 2 John verses 9 to 11, he talks about if anyone does not abide in the true teaching of Christ, he does not belong to God. And then verse 10, John takes it even further to be clear. He's, here he says, don't even receive them into your house. In fact, don't even bid them a Godspeed, the King James says. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. And that's what Peter is saying here as well. Remember, these are men who claim the name of Christ with their lips, but their character reveals who they really are. These were never men of God. These are of their father, the devil. They are so debauched, they count it as pleasure to do their wretched sins in daylight, reveling in their deceptions. How are we doing so far? Man, next Peter moves from their visible sin in verse 13 to the sin of their hearts in verse 14. He says, at the end of verse 13, as they carouse with you, having eyes, verse 14, full of adultery that never cease from sin. Again, 
shocking words from the apostle Peter. These are supposed to be spiritual leaders within the church. In a false church, they are your elders, your pastors, your overseers. And Peter says, as they carouse with you during your love feast together, these men have eyes full of adultery. In other words, sexual sin is always on their mind. Their eyes see bodies to be used before they see souls to be converted. Everywhere they look, including the church, all they see are potential sexual partners, even if only in their mind. It's that very thing our Lord spoke of in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, when He said, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Peter says that these false teachers are always lustful for they never cease from sin, verse 14. These are lustful, animalistic, false teachers who see a potential adulteress in every woman they see. They are dominated by their lust. They are never satisfied, always wanting more. Literally in the Greek, they never pause from sin. And it would be bad enough to behave like this on their own, but as the agents of Satan who hate God, there is further depths to their depravity. Notice there in verse 14, these false teachers whose eyes are full of adultery that never cease from sin, they entice unstable souls. I want you to see the picture that Peter's painting here for us. This word entice literally means to catch with bait. The word picture is unmistakable. These false teachers are like fishermen using a lure to trick their victims into believing their deceptions under the guise of maybe a loving ministry or counseling. They target the unsuspecting and they lure in those who are weak in the faith. They ensnare those new to the faith to their sexual deviation, to their error, and to their lies. They prey on the weak that they too might also sin. And it's no wonder for as we continue to read in verse 14, their hearts are trained in greed. Now this word for trained is an athletic term. Again, Peter paints these vivid pictures for us. And just like athletes who put in all that time and, and energy and commitment into constant training for their respective sport, so also do these false teachers put in all their time and energy as they train their own hearts in greed. Wow. They have deliberately fought with their conscience until they have destroyed it. These are men who will never be satisfied because the pleasures of the world will never get you there. First, first John chapter 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
then again at the end of verse 14, Peter reminds them they are an accursed children. They can deny God's impending judgment all, all they want, and they will again in chapter 3. But Peter says also in chapter 3, the heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of all the ungodly men. Well, Peter's just getting warmed up here, guys. And in verses 15 through 16, he reveals what the false teacher's primary incentive was and is today. They don't change. So if you will pick up on it in verses 15 through 16, Peter says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. Peter once again teaches his readers by referring back to the Old Testament. And he takes us to the story of the prophet Balaam. Balaam is the classic example of a prophet who was motivated by financial greed and sexual sin. Now, for those who don't know who Balaam is, he was a prophet of God. You can read about him in Numbers, specifically chapters 22 through 24. Also goes into the start of 25. Today, we don't have time to read the entire story, but let me just try to give you a quick summary of what happened. Balak, who's the king of Moab, the Moabites, hires God's prophet Balaam. And he hired Balaam to curse God's people for him. Um, Balak saw the size of Israel's army and he hoped to defeat them with Balaam's help. And when we read actually again in our handbook for chapter 2 in the book of Jude, the letter of Jude, he tells us in verse 11 that Balaam does this for financial gain. Now, when you read the story in Numbers, Balaam appears to be a faithful prophet at first. But Balaam's stall tactics in the story imply that he was hoping to negotiate more and even higher payment from Balak. So each time he goes back and forth, I think he's trying to drive up the cost according to the other supportive texts. And even though Balaam claimed to speak only the words of God, the Lord knew he wanted to curse Israel in exchange for the money. So it says in Numbers 22, 22, that God's anger was kindled because he went. He was going forward. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way of his adversary, Balaam. And the angel of the Lord drew his sword. Well, when this happened, the donkey that Balaam's riding on uh, stops right there in his tracks. Uh, she could see the angel of the Lord was standing right there in front of him. And so the donkey gets right off the road and she um, runs out into the field. And Balaam, who's blind to all of this, is fuming with his donkey. And so he goes and he hits her and he says, get back on the road. Well, the donkey gets back onto the path and there's a stone wall as they go further, as they walk next to it. And this time when the donkey sees the angel of the Lord in front of him, she pushes up against the stone wall, and as she does, she crushes Balaam's foot against it. So again, Balaam strikes his donkey. And then the third encounter, the 
angel of the Lord goes ahead and he stands right in the middle of the most narrowest spot of the road. And so this time the donkey can't go right, the donkey can't go left, and so all she could do was just to lay down and cower at Balaam's feet. Well, this really kindles Balaam's anger, and this time he hits the donkey with his staff. Then something incredible happens. The Lord opened up the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey said, What have I done to you? Why do you keep hitting me? And what's striking about this story is we see this little old donkey who is more aware of the presence of God than prophet who is blinded by his greed. And so, Peter says, just like the false prophet Balaam, these false teachers among you also forsake the right way. They have gone astray having followed the way of Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Well, sadly for Balaam, his error didn't stop there. When you read on in Numbers 31, 16, Moses identifies Balaam as the primary corrupting influence on the sons of Israel. Balaam encouraged the Israelites to practice idolatry, immorality, intermarriage, in a second attempt to destroy them, and this time by assimilating them with the pagan Canaanite people. The prophet's apostasy not only assaulted God's holiness, but it also threatened the very existence of God's chosen people. And although Balaam knew better, he allowed his fleshly impulses to guide his choices, and as a result, he suffered the ultimate penalty of death. Moses killed him. So Peter says these false teachers have also gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam. Just another tragic story as here was a prophet of the Most High God and he traded it all the way for the things of the world. That was section number one. Their character is ungodly. We now move to section number two where we learn there their influence is evil. Their influence is evil. <coughs> Notice verse 17. <clears throat> As Peter again just piles up the pictures for us. He wants us to get this. He wants us to see the seriousness of these deceptions. <clears throat> Let's just read this one story again before we go through it. And I want you to notice Peter's tremendous denunciation of these men he says these are like springs without water and mist driven by a storm from whom the black darkness has been reserved for speaking out arrogant words of vanity they entice by fleshly desires by sensuality those who barely escape from the ones who live in error promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Peter's pouring his whole heart out here, and he describes these false teachers by using two metaphors that represent water, images that work well in an arid land that they're in. First, he says in verse 17, 
these people are like springs without water. In other words, what they claim to promise, they cannot deliver. They offer the spiritual thirsty nothing more than false hopes of relief. Imagine walking through the desert heat only to arrive at the spring and you see that it has no water. That's what he's relating these false teachers to. Second, they are like mists driven by a storm. In the eastern Mediterranean region, sea breezes periodically bring in mists and um, fog, fog clouds that at first appeared to be a, a sign of rain to come, only to have their hopes blown away as the storms drive them out before it rains. Instead, listen to the promise what the Lord Jesus Christ has to say in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 38. If anyone thirsts, hear the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is the only true living water. He says in John 4, verse 14, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The message Peter is giving us here is clear. Keep your eyes on the truth. These false teachers are nothing but mirages in the hot desert as you're walking through the sand. And Peter describes them as those who promise and who cannot deliver. And then once again, Peter doesn't hesitate to announce the judgment that awaits for these false teachers. He continues in verse 17 and says, For whom the black darkness has been reserved. The black darkness mentioned here refers to hell, the place of eternal damnation. It says in verse 18, For they speak out arrogant words of vanity. And again, this speaks to their brazen arrogance. Despite the fact that they have zero spiritual wisdom to offer anyone. False teachers invariably act as though they are filled with usually new and hidden and great knowledge. So they speak with loud boasts of folly. And then it says in verse 18, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. This is what false teachers do. They do not care about bringing the truth to people's minds. Instead, they target people's lusts, offering carnal, feeling-oriented messages that feeds the sensual instincts of its hearers. People who follow false teachers are those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Often these are new or even young converts who profess their faith in Christ, but they attend an unregenerate church and so this is especially evil because again these false teachers like to seduce souls verse 14 that are unstable they particularly aim at those who have not been strongly established in the truth of god's word like satan that slithers up and seduces them as they prey on their vulnerabilities and weaknesses and hurts and troubles and they speak with a seductive arrogance and in peter's church they were teaching these people you can live however you want to live without the fear of repercussion 
And surely that would have been attractive to those who might have still been wrestling with temptations. And then the irony in all of this is found in verse 19. These false teachers promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. Notice they're offering freedom though they are the ones who are enslaved. Remember all the way back in verse 1, they denied the master who bought them. They confessed Jesus by word only, but they denied him as their Lord. You see, they can't offer anyone freedom because they themselves are slaves of corruption. They are slaves of sin. They promise freedom. They promise peace. They promise deliverance. You can have it all, they say. It's all here, health, wealth, and happiness. It's all yours. But they themselves don't have it to give because they are enslaved to their own sinful corruption and unredeemed condition. Beloved, the only true freedom comes in Christ. This brings us to point number three, where we see their perversion is habitual. If you haven't noticed all the way through, they haven't stopped being perverted in sin. Their perversion is habitual. Notice how Peter concludes this chapter in verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandments handed on to them. At some point in their lives, these false teachers identified Christianity as a way to escape the world in which they lived in. They claimed to be Christians. They claimed to believe in Jesus Christ. And they had convinced the people that they knew far more about him than they actually did. They knew a lot of things about Christ, but they did not know him. And as they pursued religious works, they in a sense, verse 20, escaped the defilements of the world. This is a tricky passage, but I think this is how we should interpret this. They weren't ever saved. Let's get that square right away. But they enjoyed the, and I wouldn't even use grace, let's use the generosities and the love that true believers graciously would extend to them as they were a part of their love feasts and gathered together as the church body. In the beginning, they may have even enjoyed hearing about Christ and listening to all the amazing things Christ had done in all of your lives. So Peter says, these false teachers who escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. For you see, they never were in Christ. They knew about Him, but they did not have a true saving knowledge of the Lord. And eventually, all of the false Christs and false prophets become exposed by their sin and they are again 
entangled in the world's defilements and are overcome. These kinds of men were never the overcomers that John wrote about in his first epistle or in the book of Revelation. No, for there was no salvation. There was no grace received. No grace received. They did not overcome the power of sin. They did not walk by the Spirit. They did not persevere in the faith. No, they only sink back into the defilements of the world that they had come out of and completely reject the gospel of salvation. Peter finishes verse 20 with this shocking truth. That the last state has become worse for them than the first. Why? Why is the last state far worse for them than the first? Because it is much more severe eternal punishment in hell for those who know the truth, who sit under the teaching of the truth, who get even hardened by the truth and then go back to the world and does not act in accord with God's truth for they do not believe. Jesus said it in this way and he lays it out for us in Luke 12, verse 47 through 48. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will, will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. This is why Jesus looked at Jesus and he said, it would have been better for that man if he had never been what? Born. Judas sat under Jesus' teaching. For over three years, he pretended that he loved Christ and was serving Christ, while all along Judas was nothing more than a thief and a liar who hated the Lord, and ultimately he betrayed Jesus because of his what? Greed. Greed. So, in light of this, verse 21, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it and turned away from the holy commandments handed on to them. What a statement. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. It would have been better. What's the way of righteousness? Individually, it's faith in Christ. As a whole, we can call it Christianity. It will be referred to as the way. It's called the way of truth in verse 2 of this chapter. It's called the, the right way in verse 15 of chapter 2 also. Back in the book of Acts, believers in Christ are repeatedly referred to as followers of the way. But for these false teachers, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, that's the Christian faith, than having known it and turn away from the holy commandment. So what's now the holy commandment? Scripture, the word of God. It would have been better that they had never even knew about the Christian faith as doctrines, the words of Christ, than to have heard it and rejected it. Their professed Christian experience gave them access to the true knowledge of Christ and to the true teaching of Scripture. They had it. You have it today. That's why it says at the end of verse 21, the Holy Commandments was handed on to them. These were teachers. Some of them even taught it. They preached it. 
but it says they turned away from the truth. So Peter says it would have been better for them if they had never known it. I want you to turn quickly to Hebrews chapter 10, and I want you to follow along. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 31, just a few verses, but I want you to listen to the warning the writer to the Hebrew says about this same issue. He says in verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving, notice, the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he, that is Christ, was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Verse 26 is a powerful verse. See, these false teachers believed you could live however you wanted to live because you were free in Christ. But Scripture says if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. See, it's not like they did not know the truth. They just deliberately went on sinning. They counted a pleasure, remember, to sin in the daylight. So the writer to the Hebrews says of them, they'll experience worse punishment as one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant and has outraged the spirit of grace. For those people, verse 30, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. For as verse 31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And again, it says the Lord will judge his people. Well, this takes us to the Final verse of chapter 2. Are you still hanging in there? All right. I've got a couple with me. Peter looks one last time at, at these despicable false teachers and he leaves us with graphic, graphic imagery. He starts in verse 22 by saying, it has happened to them. And here he's referring back to those verses in 20 and 21 after they had escaped the the defilement of the world. They were once again entangled in it and have been overcome by it, the sin. And so he's essentially painting a picture here as these false teachers are sinking in the muck of the defiled world from which they had come from. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit. Any sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. And here Peter quotes from Proverbs 26, 11, which says, like a dog that returns to its own vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Man, that's pretty graphic. Our dog Hurley did just the other day. He apparently ate his food too fast. Next thing I know, I see him eating his own vomit. That's pretty gross. 
<laughs> he cleaned it up good. <laughs> Beloved, the Christian church is full of people who at some point in time wanted to escape the misery of the world out there. It's a miserable world out there. And they do so by working hard, by pulling up their boots to clean themselves up through a, a religion. And many of these men have become now pastors, teachers, preachers, overseers, Christian counselors. And for a while, it looked like it was working for them. There's a blessing, like I said earlier, in being just a part of the church family and hearing the true word of God proclaimed. However, if someone's heart has not been changed by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, where that heart of stone is removed and God puts in that new heart of flesh that now beats for God, that now lives for the Lord Jesus Christ with new desires and new ambitions, if that doesn't happen, not only are you not a new creation in Christ, not only are you not born again, not only are you not washed by the precious blood of Christ, but also, like a dog, you'll return to your own vomit. You'll return back from where you came from eventually. And Peter says the false teachers are like these dogs who go back to their vomit. And they're like pigs who get all cleaned up only to go back into the mud. Now Peter uses both dogs and pigs. I think most of us get the pigs, but why the dog? Well, in biblical times, dogs weren't, uh, were very rarely kept as household pets. Um, they were sometimes to uh, herd sheep, um, but largely they were half-wild mongrels who were dirty and homeless and diseased and were vicious. And they lived off people's garbage scraps. So they were just likely to return and eat their own vomit as anything else to eat. Pigs, likewise, have always represented filth. And so Peter's comparison then is unmistakable. He says, stay away from these filthy, wretched, spiritually unclean pigs these filthy dogs. Beloved, the contemporary Christianity that exists today contains many of the people like the ones Peter described in this passage. They have sought personal improvements, moral reformations in their quest for spiritual and religious experience. Many have become preachers within the professed church, and tragically, like the pigs of our text, they are exposed for who they are and they will eventually return to their old lifestyle, rejecting the only one who can truly reform them, Jesus Christ. In view of this chapter, Peter's warning is clear. Be on guard, beloved, for false teachers. Do not allow them to take up residence in your ears and with your eyes. Stay clear away do not give them the opportunity, but if given the opportunity to confront them, please do with care and expose them firmly to the truth, lovingly to God's word. And I know this has been a challenging section of verses for us, as I mentioned earlier, but praise God, we have a church who 
who desires the truth, who loves the Lord with all your hearts, souls, and mind. If you are in need of prayers this morning, we would be happy to pray with you. You're welcome to come forward as we stand and sing and praise our Lord, the King of Kings. Lord bless you.